What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Myself, I, I didn't want to get a divorce. I never stopped loving them. But the way I, I love them changed. They are like flavors. Sometimes you want raspberry, then after a while you get tired of it, you want some strawberry. And if you're Terrence Malick, sometimes you want your characters speaking in a hushed voiceover, and sometimes, well, you know what, let's just stick with the hushed voiceover. That hushed voiceover courtesy of Antonio Banderas and a clip from Malick's latest, Night of Cups, which stars Christian Bale, along with Kate Blanchett, Natalie Portman, and a whole host of amazing actresses really in roles just as baffling as Banderas's. Our review, plus the third film in our Elaine May marathon, Mikey and Nikki. That and much more. And after you tire of strawberry, maybe back to raspberry. Or maybe mint chip. Ahead on film spotting. Film spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. Visit squarespace.com slash film to start your free trial. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And Josh, to start, they've got one big movie this week they want to mention. In tribute to Polish visionary Andrzej Zuławski, who unexpectedly died last month, Mubi is exclusively presenting his legendary horror sensation set in Cold War Berlin, Possession. It stars Isabella Johnny and Sam Neill. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, and that's all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film Spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam this week. We are back after an unanticipated week off. We apologize for that. We're going to try to make up for it here with a jam-packed show. And Josh, we've actually had to scale it back a little bit. We were all set to do our top five Terrence Malick images. We've already done scenes, but this filmmaker in particular, maybe more so than any other filmmaker, really deserves, we think, that type of granular attention. And we're going to give him that granular attention. We're just going to do it next week gotten a lot of great submissions via social media so we will share our top five Terrence Malick images next week but this week we're going to dive into the third film in our Elaine May marathon it is Mikey and Nikki starring Peter Falk and John Cassavetes and we're finally getting around to unveiling the film spotting madness bracket the second annual edition of our version of March Madness 32 directors only one lives to direct another day that's all later in the show but first, Film Spotting Madness contestant Terrence Malick delivers his third film in six years with Knight of Cups. Will it help or hurt his chances in the tournament? All those years, living the life of someone I didn't even know. Let me tell you about you. I want to make you rich. You see the palm trees? They tell you anything's possible. different these days. What's going on with you? I can't remember a man I wanted to be. Just don't threaten me with leaving, okay? Just do what you want to do. You don't want love. 
You want a love experience. For better or for worse, some Terrence Malick movies, but particularly his latest, offer a kind of cinematic Rorschach test, with images, mind you, that are far more alluring and evocative than any potential array of ink blots. Based on the visual clues we're given, and here, as is common with Malick, there aren't really oral clues to speak of, no dialogue that helps explain, well, anything. Each viewer must interpret for themselves even basic character stuff such as, just what is it that Christian Bale's Rick does for a living? He lives in L.A., talks to several Hollywood types, seems to have Hollywood-type money that he's mindlessly spending on women and booze, is occasionally on movie sets. Someone maybe mentioned writing? Okay, he's a screenwriter. Let's go with that. More significantly, though, what is it that Rick wants? As he stares off at insert landscape here with a permanent insert synonym for disillusion here, look on his face, one must consider what disease Rick is suffering from. Only then might we come up with the cure. About halfway through, as I struggled to assign order and meaning to Malik's chaotic, vapid universe, I caught my mind wandering. What is it I wanted to say about Knight of Cups? And this is where we return to the Rorschach test. I realized at that moment, I could envision myself sitting here arguing against Cups as an unrewarding, empty experience, or arguing for Cups as the ultimate artistic embodiment of one man's unrewarding empty experience. All it would require is for me to do the one thing Rick doesn't seem capable of doing in any aspect of his life. Commit. Lie down on the couch and tell me what you saw on the screen, Josh. Perhaps a precious, profoundly expressive butterfly, or maybe a pretty enough but paltry bat. Uh, butterfly or bat, I don't know yet. I mean, it was it was a similar experience to yours. And Malik is one of these filmmakers that I've been a little bit back and forth on. I'm not a Malik disciple. I think The Tree of Life is an absolute masterpiece. I'm with you there. And I know we split onto The Wonder. The films before The Tree of Life, I'm probably a little more uneven on, mm. as a matter of I think of fact. Badlands is also a masterpiece. Badlands, yeah, that's probably his second best in, in my book, too. Mm -hmm. But this one felt a little bit, boy, you know, it's not so much that it was baffling to me. It's that in its own way, it was too clear or too strident or the symbolism. Maybe. Doesn't that seem like an odd yeah. word to use for a Malick film? But I think at the end of the day, that is what's happening here. And that's not to say that there aren't things that I have yet to piece together, mm -hmm. that there may be references with some of these images that I have yet to latch onto. I know a listener on Twitter and I were going back and forth a little bit about what could the helicopters symbolize that we see and that Rick seems to pay attention to every once in a while. So I'm not saying that this is a thin movie, mm -hmm. but I do feel that at its core, it you got it. It's a guy who has what feels very much like privileged angst. Yeah. And Malik is using his extreme artistic talents and his interests in themes that have echoed through all of his films to elevate that privileged angst to a mythical status. And in this case, that felt a little lacking to me. Now, we can get into some of the things here that are still astounding just because of the way Malik uses the camera and mm -hmm. the way that he invents this new cinematic language, even though he's been increasingly working 
towards this language. It still feels so different from what most other people are doing that it has this freshness to it. But here to me, it's just applying it to this story that's as simple really as a couple of the things that the movie itself alludes to early on. The Pilgrim's Progress, which not to say that's simple, but it is an allegory. And this is very much an allegory as well. And this tale that we hear about a prince who traveled west to Egypt in search of a great pearl and got lost and fell asleep and needed to be woken up. Mm -hmm. Clearly, Rick is the prince. And so we get this dichotomy here of a man struggling to find himself and being increasingly lost in the vapidity that is the Hollywood lifestyle we see. Yeah, I'm with you on your take on this film overall that is where I came out as well and as you mentioned you're a big fan of To the Wonder I'm not at all and it's maybe a little bit ironic I went back to look at my notes for that film mainly because I remembered almost nothing about it Hmm. just to try to get a little bit of footing here and most of my reservations this is the irony most of my reservations about that film apply here and they didn't seem to apply to you at all in the case of To the Wonder I'll get to those in a second I do want to point out that I really had no choice but to go back and look at my notes because my notes for Night of Cups made about as much sense to me looking back at them 24 (laughs) hours later as the movie did overall. Just humor me for a second. Here are some things I jotted down. Blood, comma, stage. Ingraspable, which I don't even think is a word. (laughs) All a speck in time, past, present. Humbling yourself. Can't live in dream. And Buñuel with self-awareness. Now you know why I don't take notes when I watch movies, now, Josh. You see, if you had whispered those, we would have had <laughs> would have a been, malic voiceover. It would have been profound. You're right. But some of the things I noted with To the Wonder, as I said, do apply here. I talked about during that review the sense of yearning his characters have, and I respond to that. I think most of us do. That sense of striving for something beyond themselves, both physical connection and spiritual connection. But like with that film, the characters here... I think, are defined only by that. There seems to be no other dimensions to them whatsoever, and that's lacking to me. And I talked about Ben Affleck in that film as well, a character who does nothing but basically looks handsome in whatever J. Crew outfit he's wearing. And here you could say the same thing about Christian Bale, except you'd have to replace J. Crew with Prada or something along those lines. I guess for me, as much as I was initially responding to this film, and I'm not really sure why, I think it comes down to what you were saying about Malick, the imagery, the cinematography from Emmanuel Lubetsky, the fact that, and we can talk about some of these images specifically, he seems to shoot things in ways that we've just never seen before. There is something thrilling about that. I was with it for a good chunk of the film, and then at some point I recognized that the only real drama was going to be how many more ways Malick can show Christian Bale looking unhappy. And then the second question, how many more actresses are going to appear on screen for Bale to frolic on beaches with? I mean, what Oscar-nominated actress was going to somehow magically appear only to be on screen for seven or eight minutes and then to go away? Yeah. And let me get to a couple of things that maybe distinguish it for me from To the Wonder. These are elements that To the Wonder didn't have that I think work to the detriment of Knight of Cups. And one is this sense of an uneasy and and simplistic, there's that word again, moralism that this movie has to it. Mm -hmm. And that is because of the line Malik has drawn here in that Hollywood business urbanity bad And nature, you know, away from Hollywood, Mm -hmm. good. And he defines Hollywood largely as sex, drugs, 
and just this sort of uh, listlessness, I guess. And that trickles even into the aesthetics of this film so that we see it in the camera work. And you mentioned he's working with Lubezki here and they're using 35 millimeter film. They have some sequences with GoPro and essentially what ends up happening, it's not strict one-to-one, but for the most part, they use digital to convey debauchery Hmm. and they use celluloid to convey this more natural and free space. Again, when Bale is off looking into a landscape. And so you have that line drawn that's clear and the association is also carried over into the editing. So that will have Malik's usual, he always uses jump cuts, but they're these free-flowing jump cuts that slip right into each other so they don't feel jarring at all. And you see that, again, mostly in the nature scenes or mm-hmm. the scenes where he's perhaps connecting with Natalie Portman's character or Kate Blanchett's character, who are the two who probably get the most real sense of their own person or self. Right. But then you get this frantic, really frantic editing scheme that's going on when he's at a nightclub or he's at a strip club or he's, you know, frolicking in a hotel with two women. And again, it's it's just this sort of um, simplistic approach that he, here's here's a really problematic thing that happens with that is when you have a strict dichotomy about this, it's going to reduce so many of the characters to binary figures, right. in other words, to represent this. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is some of the women representing sin and sex and Hollywood. And these would be the strippers or the women at the nightclub. And some are those more women, earthy. Or, those, yeah. yeah. And those women that he's in the, in the um, hotel room with, notice that a lot of the frames... They're literally decapitated. All you see is from their neck down and they're naked. And again, they're representing, you know, naughtiness and debauchery. Mm -hmm. Then you have the far other end of the scale with a figure like Blanchett's or Natalie Portman's or a few others that he encounters who represent these wise sages. So it's like women are either or. It's almost the, you know, the the magical Negro syndrome that other films have had. It's almost like that's how Malick is using women here. They're there to serve Rick's to comfort him to give him words of wisdom, mm-hmm. to be there as markers along his journey and further point him along the way. And now that I see it so blatantly in Night of Cups, I do wonder if that's something that you can pick up on in other Malick films. I think it's I think it's most at the forefront here. And I think like in Tree of Life, you could argue that Jessica Chastain is perhaps, even though in a sense she's not the main figure, she's the most dominant, fully formed mm-hmm. person in that film. Yeah. Um, so, so I she don't think this... She represents another way than she the does. father does. Yeah. She does. And so I don't think this is something that we can do revisionist history on all of Malick's films, but here, it's definitely at the forefront, and it was definitely a problem for me. And that goes back a little bit to one of my notes about To the Wonder, where Javier Bardem in that movie plays a priest character, and I complained about the fact that some of those scenes that felt pseudo-documentary in that movie, where he seemed to be interacting with non professional actors who were suffering from a variety of afflictions, those to me felt a little cheap and cynical because of that binary nature mm. that was so stark and obvious. There's something that like Malik that was here, too. And there's something like yeah. that here. And it applies to the Blanchette character where she's, I think, an ex-wife and she's a doctor. And she is unlike everyone else in Hollywood. And we know that partly because she works with these homeless people, it seems, who have a variety of afflictions, whether it's deformities or suffering from a certain infection. And it's just such an easy contrast to draw between the artificiality of Hollywood and here this more maternal, earthy woman that will actually touch these people and actually help these people. And I think it's the opposite of what he does. You talk about a movie where you could go back and look at that same approach to how women can 
change men or help men. Look at a film that I love that you don't like as much, The New World, or even The Thin Red Line. There, though, he gives, Malik gives so much careful attention to those lives and those people and fleshes those characters out, the other characters, to our protagonists. It makes you understand why they're responding to those people the way they do. We don't get that type of dimension or just that type of time and attention in this film at all. Again, it's because I think he's so interested in drawing these kind of allegories and creating these archetypal figures, but there's just not enough weight to them. Where I'll disagree with you a little bit, perhaps, is that I didn't mind the character Rick's compulsion to seek refuge in women. I think that's the character's problem. And I think it poses a really interesting and kind of tough question, which is, would it actually be worse if the way Malik depicted these women is he gave them more dimension, he made them more flesh and blood, and they really were transformative characters in his life, as opposed to the type of characters that he's constantly looking to for redemption, only to then discard them. It would seem to be that that would be the ideal scenario. But the reality is, I think it's reflective of that character's sense of disillusionment, his sense of discord with the world, that he thinks women are that answer. I mean, it's really no different in some ways than the Charles Grodin character in Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid that we talked about, where he sees this goddess in Sybil Shepherd and says, you know what? She's the answer to all my problems. I need that. I need to own that. He just hasn't found his queen yet. He keeps thinking that he's going to find the woman that's going to redeem him. Right. And that's a misguided worldview. And he does ultimately discard them. And that's unfortunate. But I think that's reflective of his sense of angst and ennui with the world. Sure. And yeah, clearly that's what Malik's going for here. And the Sybil Shepherd example is perfect because that's, as I said, when we reviewed that film, you know, she gives a remarkable performance considering that could have been purely mm -hmm. a symbol the girl she was playing and instead she invests her with some cleverness some even some diabolical bits yeah. of how she's leading him along and it's just the fact that it's such a one-to-one -one here you know it's that again these women bad sex bad mm -hmm. is what you're getting from this and that that just seems like so simplistic to me here and here's an example where the movie does something it does the same thing in capturing his unease i think in a way that shows um malik's ability to to really make cinematic poetry that gets across an idea and this doesn't use women at all it's the earthquake sequence yeah and we've seen earthquakes how many times on films not just in disaster movies but also done in a smaller scale to try to capture what that experience must be like whatever malik and lubezki are doing here it felt very different to me just where they place the camera and this is when rick is at his apartment and he runs downstairs and there's this one shot where it's kind of low to the ground looking up at him and he just like falls to his knees and, and just grabs yeah. the earth yeah yeah. And we move a little bit and that captures better this guy's state of unease mm -hmm. and losing his equilibrium and being lost in the world and not knowing where to grasp better than any of those decapitated nudes. Yeah. You know, but it doesn't have all of those unfortunate associations that I feel like the movie mostly leans on. Sure. In terms of what did work, and we talked about some of the imagery, there's a sequence that I believe is separated by one of these tarot cards, and it's called The Tower. And I'm not sure if the man he's talking to, who is sort of trying to sell him on 
a way to invest his money. He might be some kind of financial guy. At first, I thought maybe he was actually trying to sell the Rick character on a place to live. Like, you live in this this world, and it will be the answer to all your problems. But he talks specifically with him about how he wants to make him rich. So there's some connection there. And that glass building, I mean, we've seen buildings like that a million times in movies, and yet something about the camera here, the way it captures it, it seems so much more harrowing in some ways. It seems like if he walks into it, if he gives himself over to it, he really will lose any shred of a soul that he has left. And even there's a shot of a parking garage. And it reminded me a lot of a shot from that Sofia Coppola movie, The Bling Ring, different cinematographer, but that captures one of the homes they're, they're going to break into in the hills. There's this shot of this garage with the car's in the structure, the way it's lit, the way you see some of the neon lighting. Again, we've seen parking structures like that a million times in our lives. We haven't yet, seen it like that. No, it feels like it's another planet. Yeah. It really does feel like it's another planet. And I think those images, to your point about how single images like that can say so much more than some of the other more dramatic portrayals of that sense of disillusionment and disconnection from the world, that sense of the city here as an alien being and you being an alien within it are facades. I think Malik is suggesting these facades are just that these structures really offer no foundation whatsoever. And I do love some of those moments. Unfortunately, I probably would have enjoyed this movie more had he spent the whole time just shooting landscapes and structures yeah, and not bothered and not bothered with any of the people, because the more I watch Christian Bale literally scene after scene after scene making the same face staring out at nothing or frolicking, as I said, or goofing around with these women in different ways, but not really different ways, just different women, different variations on the same theme. It did grow tedious. Well, that image you mentioned of the parking garage is why you can't just write Night of Cups off and say this thing was a failure because right. all of a sudden you'll get something like that. And it absolutely jumped out at me as well. And I think it's it ties in for me this recurring idea Malik has of just trying to understand how something can can be at once beautiful and also be broken. Mm -hmm. And also, this is something that Knight of Cups gives us is an attention to an urban setting that we've gotten maybe here and there in other Malik films, but obviously it's mostly taking place within the city of Los Angeles. And so you have his camera and Lubezki's camera turned on things like the freeways, the concrete of the freeways that they capture in a slightly different way and mm -hmm. reminded me a little bit of in Solaris, the Andre Tarkovsky oh, yeah. film where he's too. driving yeah. through the concrete tunnel. It's something that doesn't really seem futuristic at all and really isn't somehow seems very they futuristic. give it they yeah. give it that sense and uh, so i think there's an idea here of these urban settings you know you know how his characters often will run their hands along yeah, uh, wheat fields yeah. right well i it's love here how Malik shot. Yeah. they're doing that but they're running their hands along these dingy storefronts in that sequence when they do go mm -hmm. visit skid row and so i liked the little twist the variation there that he gives to a trope of his but here we're seeing it used a little bit differently and again it's this idea idea of capturing, you know, that that parking garage is who cares about a parking garage? They're functional. We use them because we have to. Have you ever seen a parking garage that looks nice? Right. No. But here somehow they've turned it into this thing of glowing beauty. I mean, it yeah. might be one of his most startlingly luminous images. Yeah. And it's a parking garage. Yeah. I mentioned alien and I meant it in a figurative way. But the fact is, it almost looks like a spaceship. 
mm-hmm. than it looks yeah. like a parking garage. And that's something pretty remarkable when you can have that reaction to an image that is a very familiar one. Knight of Cups is out now in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, let us know what you think. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net or you can leave us a voicemail, which you have to do in a hushed voiceover-like tone, 312-264-0744. Who needs basketball when you can play film spotting madness? Actually, I guess you can have both. We're going to unveil the official bracket for our riff on the tournament next. Stay with us. Slow brain, winner heart. First name, Rollo. Walks on good behavior from his cell. And my old girlfriend. Used to not to, but now knows him well. And slow thinking Lincoln, nickname Needles, used to call me deep down from his little corner of hell. And my old girlfriend. To not to, but now knows him well. Hey folks, a quick reminder that film spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. From the strange to the downright bizarre, great stories define us. You should tell yours. With simple tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture your story with a captivating website. Start your free trial today. Just visit squarespace.com film. And Josh, as we like to do here, we have a testimonial from Ivana in Canberra, Australia. And I picked this testimonial because it's great, but also because... I can't wait to have you read this for the first time and blush right before my eyes. Oh, boy. This would be great. Let's see. Your podcast is the only podcast I listen to that's solely dedicated to film. That's out of 103 podcasts in my feed. I don't think it's a stretch to say that your show inspired my friend and I, the friend who told me about film spotting in the first place, to do our own film discussion podcast. The idea wasn't so much to talk about the technical aspects of the film or to really judge its merits, but to discuss the ideas and themes it raised. Alas, it was short-lived. But Ivana has launched a new show, it turns out, for which she says, I use Squarespace in creating a website for it. My new podcast is called Love Canberra. It tells Canberran stories of love, sex, and relationships. The first episode is about a practice called orgasmic meditation. And for that, I spoke to a Canberra-based OM coach. There's even a shorthand for it. (laughs) And a male who practices it. Spoiler alert, I also recorded my first and only OM facilitated by said coach and done with this male OM practitioner. So everyone just quit listening to Film Spotting right now well, and run out and download this show. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we found another it sounds, spinoff it for sounds the Film Spotting more, family of podcasts. Maybe. It sounds a lot more fascinating than what we're doing here. And Josh, just because I didn't want to see you turn too red in front of me as you read that, I cut out some of the other podcasts that she's recorded and Ivana has coming up. All fairly interesting stories, she said. Although I don't intend on limiting the podcast to just people who seem to be engaged in these interests and living these lives that are quite hidden. The podcast can be found at lovecanberrapodcast.com. And her server just went down. (laughs) Visit squarespace.com slash film. Squarespace, you should. Motorcycle Wilson. 
last name's a mystery. Forty feet underground. Three years worth of food and water. And everyone outside of here is dead. I saved your life by bringing you here. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Acting treasure, John Goodman there in that clip from 10 Cloverfield Lane, which also stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead. It opened last weekend, and right now it is what we are planning to discuss on next week's show. Admittedly, we're getting to it a little bit late, but we're curious about it, and there is little less of interest on our part out right now, especially in wide release. We've gotten some emails and various comments on social from people curious for our takes on the movie. I'm really curious to see the movie after seeing the trailer a couple times, so I look forward to diving into that next week. And we were thinking a little bit about a Goodman-inspired top five. I called him an acting treasure. We were thinking about doing kind of our top five acting treasures, guys like Goodman who they appear on screen. Maybe you didn't even know they were in the movie, and you immediately just get a smile on your face and you're really happy to see them. We are going to probably hold that over for a future top five. I'm I'm sure sure we'll have have another excuse yeah, to do that one. We are going to instead spend a little bit more time on Terrence Malick, as we mentioned off the top of the show, much to the chagrin of our producer, Sam Van Hallgren, to have 10 Cloverfield Lane and a Malick top five. We'll find a way to connect them, Josh. You know what? That that bothers the anal retentive side of me, too, but I'm sure it'll work. And it's, you know, it's also nice to follow up. Neither of us were all that high on Night of Cups, so it'd be nice to give some Malick praise, a whole segment of Malick praise next week. There you go. I like that. We'll use that when Sam gets mad at me next time. We wanted to also promote a little bit of bonus content, which some of you have already partaken in, and we mentioned it a few weeks ago here on the show. If you were somehow fascinated by our discussion, if you can call it a discussion, of The Hateful Eight, the Quentin Tarantino film. I listened to some things you Did said, you? so okay. that, that makes it a discussion. <laughs> yeah, it was a conversation, sure. And also The Revenant, the Inyari 2 film. I don't think you listened to anything I said on that. Moving right along. We shared... A lot of listener feedback in response to our battle over those films, Josh, and we managed to make that into a wholly separate 90-minute show, and we left out a lot of great listener feedback, unfortunately. There was just so much good stuff, we couldn't get to it all, but that is available now, and if you're curious to hear that, you can find a direct link to it over in the top story section of our website. That's filmspotting.net. You know what I love about our listeners is I think one of the first responses I saw to that was someone's secondary feedback to our feedback about the feedback Uh asking us, (laughs) would you consider doing another session of this? Yeah. I don't think we're going to be able to pull that off. We do not have the strength for that. We also have some movie passes to give away. And as we get into film spotting madness here in a second, talk about a filmmaker who probably deserves to be on the list, except I'm so woefully unaware of his work. That's Arnaud Desplechin, the acclaimed French director. He has a new film. It's a coming-of-age movie called My Golden Days. It opens here in Chicago on March 25th. According to the description, it's an origin story reflecting on a young man's life, including the love that defined it. Josh, we actually have 75 Admit 2 passes to give away. We could fill a quarter of the theater, right? Basically, it's going to be a film-spotting private screening. It's just for our listeners. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, so a few days before the movie comes out, you can see the latest Desplechens film for free. All you have to do is go to filmspotting.net and right there in the top story section and there is a link that will allow you to enter. A little bit more theater spotting here on the show. Some people Josh enjoyed when a few weeks back I returned from my viewing of Hamilton on Broadway and I spent a few minutes talking about what I loved about the production so much and just for the record 
that really was an abbreviated version of my reaction to Hamilton because you can ask one of my best friends from college, BRK. I met him in Minneapolis about a week after I saw Hamilton, this now about two or three weeks ago, and we went out for a few beers, and I probably talked just about Hamilton for at least an hour. Lucky guy. Yeah, he's a good listener. That's why we're <laughs> friends. He listens very well, and he indulged me in just rambling about Hamilton for an hour. We're not going to talk about Hamilton here, but we saw another play. We went out, took our wives to Steppenwolf here in Chicago this past weekend, and this play happens to have a direct correlation to what we do here on the show. It is about movies. There is a fair amount of movie talk in the play. It is called The Flick, written by Annie Baker. It won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2014. I first really became aware of it because of WTF. She did an interview with Mark Marin maybe a couple months ago, and they talked a little bit about The Flick, though none of it was in my mind at all when I saw the play. I kind of haven't stopped thinking about it since we saw it. I yeah. loved it. I don't know if I loved it as much as Hamilton, but I love few things in life as much as Hamilton. I thought this was amazing, though. I really can't wait to see it again. It was, let's say that it was over three hours, right? Yeah, about and 315. Pri primarily concerns. It, it's a great production design where mm -hmm. your theater seats are looking at rows of a movie theater seats right. and the projector is above when it turns on yeah. it's shining right so on imagine you. that you're the screen basically yeah. the audience is the screen i mean talk about bunuel yeah. that i made totally discreet charm came to mind right away yeah but it's that long and i was it, debbie said that she described it later <laughs> that you were she was you were in a trance yeah. or something and i absolutely was because without a change of sets and essentially these theater workers come in sweep out the popcorn one row at a time and talk get to the bottom of the rows scene ends next scene they come up lights come up and they do the same thing yeah. but i was enthralled because well for one thing the performances are so good they are. and the writing is so good mm -hmm. but also you're right. This is all movie talk, yeah. right? I mean, they're obviously touching on other things, but a lot of it is coded with references. And they just, Baker just picks the perfect, the perfect. films yeah, for totally. each spot. And I would have gone out there blissful just because it gives this a little bit backhanded, but I feel like it was sincere. So much time to honeymoon in Vegas. Oh, yeah. The Nick Cage, Sarah Jessica Parker oh, movie, yeah. which I love. And they kind of make fun of in the play, but in a way capture why it's so great. So that alone, you know, put it over the top for me. Yeah. As I was watching and sitting next to you, I was thinking about how you have that opinion and you're just as wrong as that character is in the play. <laughs> if you read between <laughs> the lines, Adam, they love it. Uh-huh. Exactly. But there was something fascinating, right, just about the production design. And the play does subtly and maybe at one point not so subtly make that connection very clear, make that meta quality of what's going on and how we are watching them and they occasionally are looking back at us. That is something that underlies everything there with this play. But it isn't about movies, but it does use movies to get at something much more fundamental and something much more human. And I really responded to that, which is this sense of something that's very similar to what's going on in Night of Cups. I just find it much more fascinating in the flick, that postmodern disillusionment. And feeling like you can find the answers for something, the answers to unlock the mystery of your life in these great pieces of art or in these things that you appreciate, and then finding that maybe they don't have all the answers. And in fact, you don't really know how to exist in the world except as you relate to objects like that, objects that aren't real. And so the play deals with that. One of my favorite topics for films to dive into, for art to dive into, kind of that breakdown between reality and fantasy. It's at the core of everything in this play. And without spoiling anything, there's a moment 
that kind of contradicts everything I just said that actually does come back and give you a sense of the power of movies to truly illuminate something real. Yeah. And it couldn't nail it any better than they do, than Annie Baker and those actors do at the yeah, end. Yeah, the description that came to mind is it's it really captures the anti-magic of the movies mm-hmm. in the sense that it's rooting us in the bottom rung of the movie business, right? right. Sweeping up the crap off the floor, yeah. yet somehow manages to capture why they're so enthralling in the same way that something like Hail Caesar does, mm-hmm. but that does it by immersing us in the on-screen wonder, right? In the singing and the dancing and all that. And this somehow gets at that same sense of uh, how the movies can get a hold on us, but in this really bottom rung setting. And, you know, the main difference with Knight of Cups is the the malaise here is filtered among three distinct personalities, each right. coming from their own world experience. Yeah. And so that gives it a particular richness. Hi, Adam and Josh. It's Mike Merrigan from beautiful Dover, New Hampshire, just a mere 3,017 miles from Chino. As the founding father of Film Spotting Madness, I'm happy and excited to help kick off this year's tournament. Who is Film Spotting Nation's favorite director working today? It's clear to me who the favorites are going in. You have to think Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, the Coen brothers, and Quentin Tarantino should lock down the top four seeds. I think the smart money would be on an Anderson versus Anderson matchup in the finals, which to me seems like the final word on whether Film Spotting Nation is really Team Adam or Team Josh. However, don't count out some of the scrappy underdogs in this tournament. Marty Scorsese may be the elder statesman, but he can still run the floor with the rookies. Hometown favorite Ryan Johnson will enjoy the benefit of playing on his home court, and though Terrence Malick's style is unconventional, it should give him a chance to contend. This tournament is sure to have its share of thrilling moments, and I can't wait to be a part of it. Best of luck to everyone in filling out their bracket sheets and winning their office pools. The only question remaining is, what will Film Spotting Madness 2017 bring us? Perhaps Best Movie Dialogue? Maybe Best Massacre Theater Performance. If so, count me in now for a straight bet on the Sweet Child of Mine acapella sensation. That bad boy's got champion written all over it. Thanks, Adam and Josh. Visit us in New Hampshire anytime. The beers are on me. We love how clever our listeners are, and Mike Merrigan will forever have a Hall of Fame spot in film spotting history for being the person who indeed came up with this notion of film spotting madness. We did it last year with 32 actors. We are doing it this year with 32 directors. Basically last year, we asked you to choose who is your favorite actor or actress from a list of 32 film spotting favorites. And you wisely, I have to say, chose Michael Fassbender last year as your favorite, and we are focusing on directors this year. Don't think that Sam and I already haven't been discussing Film Spotting Madness 2017. We have some thoughts on how it should look. Can I make a, a request? <laughs> Go ahead. Loop me in on that conversation <laughs> when, when it decided turns it? 2017. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Deal. Are Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, the Coen brothers, and Tarantino the top four seeds? Did the veterans Martin Scorsese and Terrence Malick make the cut? Well, we kind of let the cat out of the bag on that one already. Was Ryan Johnson just ruled ineligible due to the fact that he currently has the most anticipated film of anyone in the bracket slash galaxy with the upcoming Star Wars film? We will answer those questions shortly, but first we have to announce the winner of the Film Spotting Madness play-in game a few weeks ago here on the show we asked you which film spotting golden brick winning director do you want to send to the tourney even though they're inevitably going to lose because they're going up against the overall number one seed which golden brick winning director needs to be 
in the list of 32. Your choices were, in alphabetical order, Andrea Arnold, the director of Wuthering Heights, Sean Baker, the winner last year for Tangerine, Cleo Barnard for The Arbor, our 2011 brick winner, or Nuri Bilga Jalan for Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. The inaugural Golden Brick winner, Duncan Jones for 2009's Moon, was also a candidate, as was Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of the 2010 winner, Dogtooth. And there was as well Joshua Oppenheimer, who won in 2013 for The Act of Killing, the list rounded out by Jeremy Sunier, the 2014 winner for Blue Ruin. He has a film coming out that we're highly anticipating called Green Room. There are eight options there, Josh. How did it come out? All right, I'll go through the four at the bottom quickly here. They all received less than 10% of the vote. Cleo Bernard, 1%. Sean Baker, 4%. Andrea Arnold, 6%, and Jeremy Sunier with 8%. Then we jump to 12% of the vote going to Jaylon, 14% of the vote going to Lanthimos, and up at the top, very, very close, Joshua Oppenheimer, 26% of the vote, which means that Duncan Jones won with 27%. So I just looked at the final tally. The separation between Duncan Jones and my pick, Joshua Oppenheimer, 18 votes. Out of over 1,200 votes, it was only 18 votes separating those two. And we could share our thoughts on how it came out, but our listeners, as usual, were far more eloquent than us. Aaron Teachman in Washington, D.C. wrote in, I always feel bad for the winner of the NCAA play-in games. They get to celebrate for a moment before getting steamrolled by some juggernaut in the main tournament and then completely forgotten. So the main requirement for my Cinderella underdog director candidate was being able to see myself voting for one of these directors in the tournament. Without a bona fide masterpiece right out of the gate, like, well, Ryan Johnson's Brick, I would need more than one good film and ideally a great film to justify voting for them. Blue Ruin was great, but I wouldn't call it a masterpiece. Oppenheimer's films are brilliant, but he hasn't moved on to another subject yet, so I'm not sure he's the next Errol Morris. Fingers crossed. Jaylon obviously has the longest resume. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia was great, and he's got strong Michael Phillips support from Climates, but... I've only seen the one film. I'm fixing that soon, I swear. So I voted for Duncan Jones. Moon is a masterpiece. It blew my mind, and Jones got a great set of performances out of Sam Rockwell. Source Code is criminally underrated. It's mind-bending and affecting. It's the movie that got me thinking about Jake Gyllenhaal in a completely different way and reaffirmed my respect for Vera Farmiga's chops. And Jones is the only reason for me to even think about seeing Warcraft. Though, if that movie came out before the tournament and it was terrible, I would probably switch my vote. Sorry, Duncan. But for now, I'm going with Duncan Jones. Please don't pit him or any of these winners against Wes Anderson or the Coen brothers. Alex in Nottingham, England is not going to be happy with how the poll turned out. He says, Duncan Jones leading the poll? Great. We definitely need another English-speaking white male director in this. To be honest, as soon as I saw Jones on the poll, I had a suspicion he would win. Idiosyncratic directors like Andrea Arnold, Nuri Bilgajelan, or Yorgos Lanthimos will never have a chance against a populist popcorn sci-fi fantasy director like Duncan Jones, despite them being more established and ambitious. What a shame. Yeah, I don't know if I want to throw out the shame word, but I was surprised. And I love Duncan Jones, obviously. I, like Aaron Teachman, was a fan of Source Code. And it is the movie that made me rethink Jake Gyllenhaal. We're in lockstep there. But compared to some of those other filmmakers and with Source Code being the last thing he's made and it having been a few years ago now... I'm really surprised that he won. I'm surprised that there's that much love out there, I guess, for Moon still, that people thought he was the obvious choice. And I know he just did edge Oppenheimer with 27% of the vote, but I don't know. I did not expect him to come out on top at all. I thought it would surely be between Oppenheimer and Lanthimos, but Film Spotting Nation has spoken. Maybe if they had released The Lobster, like they said they were going to, good point. people could have seen it, and uh, that might have pushed him over the top. Mm-hmm. 
Billy Ray Bruton in North Hollywood, California, said, I feel like this was no contest for me, though I doubt Jeremy Sunier will get the same love as some of the others. With only three films under his belt, Murder Party, Blue Ruin, and The Brilliant Green Room, Sunier has established himself as a master of genre and a force to be reckoned with. Each of his films has been a master class in tone, pacing, and subverting audience expectations at every turn. Not only do I believe he is the best director in this poll, but I think he's forceful enough to make it pretty far in the bracket. And I'm a little disappointed he wasn't just given his own slot apart from this poll. I mean, seriously, Adam and Josh, think about Blue Ruin. Think about everything you loved about that film and try and think of a reason why he shouldn't have a spot on the bracket. Sunier for the win, with Joshua Oppenheimer a somewhat distant second. This was cut and dry for me. Well, I'm glad to hear that there's that much appreciation already for Sunye. We appreciate him as well, though wait till you hear some of the names who were left out of the 32. Billy Ray might be even more shocked by some of the names beyond Sunye, who may just be an upcoming guest on Film Spotting. There's been some discussion behind the scenes to have him on for an interview to discuss Green Room. I probably shouldn't have mentioned it because now something will just fall through. Yourself. Yeah, I just cursed it. But hopefully we are going to talk to him soon and, of course, review his upcoming Green Room. Patrick writes in, I find it difficult to believe that anyone who has seen Nuri Bilga Jalan's work wouldn't pick him. He's the best and only choice for a poll like this. Climates, Anatolia, Three Monkeys, and Winter Sleep put him in leagues ahead of a director like Sunye. With that said, it's truly disappointing to see Cleo Barnard at the bottom when she's got two nearly perfect movies under her belt, The Arbor and The Selfish Giant. I'd be curious to see if Duncan Jones would still lead these results after the release of Warcraft. I guess that will be the question. A lot of skepticism about Warcraft. But he won it and he made it to the final round of 32. Before we go through the bracket itself, we'll give you a little bit of background on how we arrived at the 32 directors who made the cut. First rule, Josh, You had to be active. It's not about trying to name the greatest director of all time or even the greatest living director. Stanley Donnan, Singing in the Rain, he's still with us, but not eligible for this list. Also, your favorite currently active director may not have made the cut either. Let's say, just totally hypothetically here, I'm just spitballing, Josh, that a director has won two consecutive Best Director Oscars. Oh, that'd be something. But you're not all that into his stuff, and I'm really not into his stuff. He or she, again, entirely hypothetical, doesn't necessarily make the cut. Sorry. I don't know who we're referring to here, Josh. <laughs> I can live without Inyaritu being uh-huh. in this poll. That's all right. Makes yeah. sense to me. Yeah, you were on board. He was, in fact, among the 32. And the realization that we had, and we agreed collectively as a group with Sam, of course, weighing in, and even Mike Merrigan weighing in as the grandfather of Film Spotting Madness, that Inyaritu just really isn't a film spotting favorite. Right. If you look back at the praise he's gotten for his films on this show, mm-hmm. even in My Love for the Revenant, yeah. his work there is probably not mentioned as much as some of the other elements in the film. So it makes sense to me. Also this year, we are going to include what we might call pantheon directors or all-timers. Last year when we did this, we left out heavyweights like Streep or Pacino or De Niro, some others too, because we wanted to keep it to a competition between relative contemporaries. Now, the eventual final between Fassbender and Jessica Chastain, we like that more than, say, if it had turned out to be Streep versus Pacino, something like that. Now, there was one exception 
which I loved. <laughs> the that Josh and things worked. Uh-huh. Hey, I only had one vote. Bill Murray last year, he almost ruined the Fassbender coronation. He made it to the final four. Yeah, don't remind me. I love Bill Murray. I don't know. I don't know why I insist on being negative. You were worried. You were worried Fassbender was going to get knocked that's, out. That's, that's why. It. So we did go in a different direction this year with the directors. We do have Malik in there. He just feels relevant still in a way that maybe the new Streep vehicle doesn't. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we probably do get a little more excited about the next Terrence Malick film, even though now it's been diminishing returns for me with Two Straight, more so than we do with a Meryl Streep movie. That's not the lone factor that's going to bring me into one of her films. We've now laid out some of the groundwork, some of the foundation for what we're trying to do here with Film Spotting Madness. It is time to finally unveil the matchups as this is getting a little bit longer than the CBS tournament special. We apologize. Everyone who is listening via podcast, we're going to give you a chance here to pause the show if you would like and open the bracket on your phone or your laptop or however you're listening. Our radio listeners, just keep your eyes on the road. You can find the link later over at filmspotting.net. But we're going to give it to you here. I'll read it twice. The link if you want to find the actual bracket. This isn't where you vote, but where you can see how the bracket breaks down. Start writing in your choices. Predict how you think the final four is going to come out. Put post-it notes on the wall like Adam has at home. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. The URL is challenge.com slash fsmadness2016. Now, that's challenge, like challenge, but with an O. Exactly how you're pronouncing it. Challenge.com slash fsmadness. FS Madness 2016. And again, if that didn't register somehow, you can find the link over in the show notes at filmspotting.net. Okay. Everyone's had a chance to go look at the bracket. We're going to go through the matchups here for the first round. 32 directors, only one lives to direct another day. And the other little rule we have to throw out here, Josh, because this was a key part of the actor's bracket last year, is that we are really thinking about future work. And obviously, you're going to consider their past work as you are weighing your excitement level over their next film. But it isn't strictly about judging sort of how you rated one filmmaker's body of work against another filmmaker's body of work so far. Maybe that second director has fewer films, but his last couple or her last couple have been so exciting to you that that's the filmmaker whose work you most can't wait to see next Does that make sense, Josh? I think I got it. Well, hopefully you and everyone else listening has got it. Let's start with the first four matchups. And I thought one way we would go through this is kind of just list them and then assess which one you think is the easiest for you, which one is a no-brainer, you know how you're voting right away, which one was the hardest, the one that really maybe kept you up a little bit extra at night. The first four matchups, Paul Thomas Anderson versus our play-in winner, Duncan Jones. Alfonso Cuaron versus Spike Jones, Steven Spielberg versus Spike Lee, and Christopher Nolan versus Michael Mann. Okay, two no-brainers here. Okay. And two really tough ones for okay. me. No-brainers, you're going with PTA, of course. He's the number one seed for a reason. He is. And I'm also going with Christopher Nolan over Michael Mann. Now, I know you'd like to say that you're going with Michael Mann. That's where you'd like to vote, Mm-mm. but you you love Interstellar yeah. more than me, so you're going, okay, good. Nolan. Gotta go Nolan. It's not That's even easy. the toughest one of the four for okay, me. Good. No, nice. I'm definitely going Christopher Nolan. The tough one, it's starting to get a little tougher with Spike Lee and Steven Spielberg yeah. because Spike Lee coming off of Chirac made my top 10 list, hoping he'll be able to maintain filmmaking at that level for a while now. Spielberg, I've liked what he's done recently, but not as much as I like Chirac. Then again... 
He has The BFG this year, which mm-hmm. was my most anticipated film of the year. So that one's really tough. I, I'm not going to give you an answer now. The toughest one in this group, though. You're copping out. The toughest one is Quran and Spike Jones. Okay, so are we in agreement here that the easiest one is PTA versus Duncan Jones? True. We're both going with Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. And the Nolan. toughest one, the toughest one is Quran yes. versus Spike Jones. Yes, I agree. Yeah, it is. It's so hard. We, we're supposed, we'd have to decide now? I didn't know we had to decide I, now on I air. Thought, I thought that's what we were doing here, Josh, but All no, right, fine. If you can't decide, you can you can hold it over for a future show. No, no, no. I'm going to go with Spike and um, I'm going to go with Quran. I am. And you know why? You're going with Spike Lee over Steven Spielberg. I am. Wow. Yeah. They're both, and it's strictly based on most recent because they're both at similar stages in their career. And I would say Spike's at a higher point right mm-hmm. now for me. That's that's the only way I can make the choice. Okay. And I'm going to go with Quran just because I liked her, but I was not, I think I, when we did our round table at the end of the year, I was the only one possibly who yeah, didn't I have it in the top 10. I still hold it so, against you. Yeah. <laughs> so I've liked other films of his more. So again, I guess I'm really heavily weighing trajectory in my decisions. Mm-hmm. So Quran. So that's where we differ. We agree that's the toughest one, but I am going with Spike Jones. As much as I love many Quran films, I mean, we're talking Children of a Men, Itu Mama Tambien, Gravity, but Spike Jones, just the gut test, whether it's based on her or some of his previous work, walking into a movie theater, I can only go see one of those two films made by one of those two directors. I just know I would be walking into the Spike Jones Theater, so that's where I'm going. And I am going with Steven Spielberg as well. Man versus Nolan is really tough, even though I think Nolan probably will walk away with it. And maybe he shouldn't. But if I think about the films of Nolan's that I really love and compare them against Man, yeah, I'm a little bit more excited about whatever he has coming out next. And there's a strong man contingent out there who could come out and force to vote. They so. could. Let's move on to the next four. Okay. Larry, we have been friends. And you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put bullets right through your heart. You put that gun down now. Quentin Tarantino versus Sarah Pauly. Ryan Johnson, oh man, versus Wong Kar Wai. Yikes. Martin Scorsese versus Edgar Wright. And Todd Haynes versus (laughs) my guy, Jeff Nichols. Oh, man. (laughs) What Um, do you got? What's your easiest and what's your toughest? So, well, the easiest is, you know, Sarah Pauly. Come on. Yeah, Tarantino. Tarantino, He's, I, I know what Tarantino can do. You know, there's no surprises. (laughs) So it's the easiest for you for exactly the opposite reason it is for me. You're definitely going Polly, and I'm definitely going Tarantino. Yeah, because Polly's again, it's it's a stage thing where she is at at her career. The things she's done have been so varied and interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, Tarantino for me is just you know on a little bit of a downward trend. Okay. So that's the easiest. Um, I'm. It's not easy, but I have to go with Jeff Nichols. I know we were just talking about this one the other day. Yeah. I mean, how do you, after Carol... <laughs> I almost rigged this how to do change you, this first round matchup. We're talking about it, which would have been really evil. But um, I'm going to go with Jeff Nichols. I just, yeah, I have to. Um, oh, man. These are all tough. But I think I'm going to go with Ryan Johnson. It's a little bit easier. Again, trajectory is coming into play here. Wong Kar Wai, after the Grandmaster, is the last thing we've seen mm-hmm. of him. Um, Ryan Johnson has not only Star Wars, but who knows what else. Yes. I mean, he's got a long career ahead of him. All right, Ryan Johnson. And here's actually this one is tougher, Edgar Wright and Scorsese. 
That's the hardest one in this bracket that is. for me. Yeah. So let me think about it. Go okay. ahead. Well, Haynes versus Nichols is the toughest one for me because as much as I love Edgar Wright and I am a big fan of his films, I think Scorsese for the most part still has his fastball and he's earned enough credibility certainly over the years that I think he deserves to advance to the next round. I'm going with Ryan Johnson over Wong Kar Wai as well. We already talked about Tarantino and Polly. That does make the toughest one for me, Todd Haynes versus Nichols, because again, huge fan of Nichols' work. Take Shelter, one of my favorite films of that year, my number two, I think. But Todd Haynes, whether it's Far From Heaven, he just finished making Carol to suggest that he's a filmmaker who isn't capable of still making four or five masterpieces, I think would be absurd. He's at the top of his game. And yet, I'm going Jeff Nichols. (laughs) (laughs) Good, (laughs) good Because it just, again, passes that test of I'm walking into the theater. I think his film is going to just speak to me a little bit more. All right, and you convinced me on Scorsese, so I'm going with him too. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on to the next set of four. Here we go. Your guy, Wes Anderson versus... Doesn't matter. Charlie Kaufman? No, it doesn't (laughs) matter who it is, right? Kelly Reichert versus Guillermo del Toro, David Fincher, man, versus Pedro Almodovar, and Richard Linklater battling Sofia Coppola. What's your easiest? Let's just start there. Of the four, which one's the easiest? This is probably the easiest bunch for me, Okay, actually, and only because it is Wes Anderson. I mean, I hate, hate, I didn't, I would hope that I wouldn't have had to make this choice with him this early on, that I have to say goodbye to Charlie Kaufman just to get Wes Anderson moving forward. But if we do want to see the eventual correct choice be made at the end of this tournament. I'm just going to have to give them the vote now. So Wes, it is Kelly Reichert. I'm going to go with over Guillermo del Toro, Mm -hmm. even though I really, really liked Crimson Peak. Um, There's a bit more of an unevenness to his career, perhaps, where I'm much more intrigued. It's that theater thing again. I'm much more intrigued by where Kelly Reichert might go and what that movie waiting for me through the doors might be. So Reichert it is. Pedro Amadovar, I'm a much bigger fan of his than Fincher. This has been something throughout Fincher's career where I'm always a degree less appreciative than everyone else on his work, even though I do largely like his work. So that one's easy. And then I'm going to go with Sofia Coppola. I really am. I am. What? Similar to Fincher. I know. Linklater is seated way too low in this poll, mainly because of you. <laughs> I didn't argue for his low seating. Well, you you didn't argue for I'm a voting, higher seating. I'm voting him out of the tournament right now. I don't know what that's worth, but exactly. No, it, it is similar. I mean, I I like again everything Linklater has done. I don't get quite as excited about the prospect of a Linklater film wow. as I do for a Coppola one, and I think she's got some really great stuff ahead of her too. So I hope that's my hope. Man. That's a bold, bold move there, Josh, because you, okay? you were... You could be no, able to proceed? No, I'm not. I just think that's ludicrous if you factor in <laughs> not only Dazed and Confused, but factor in all three of the before movies yeah, and then add Boyhood great. into the mix. That's a formidable five right there. Far better than any of the films Sofia Coppola has to offer. Again, Boyhood on our panel, the only one who didn't have it in their top ten. So yeah, I remember. I remember. You were <laughs> I hate one to bring for all four. This up. You were one for four here. The only one you got right. The only one we agree on. You better is... not be voting Wes out already. I am. Oh, good gracious. I am. <laughs> we'll get there. The one you got right is Reichert over Del Toro. Kelly Reichert is getting my vote. David Fincher definitely getting my vote after Gone Girl and after Zodiac. And after seven, among other films, for sure, Linklater, as I said, no-brainer for me, the easiest one to pick. The toughest one, I will at least give you, the picking Kaufman over Wes Anderson, by far the toughest okay, one in good. this bracket, that one of the toughest ones overall. I hate to lose Wes Anderson this early, and 
the reality is we're not going to lose him this early. I think he's probably going to beat Kaufman. But after Anomalisa and after Synecdoche, New York, put those up against the Grand Budapest Hotel, the Darjeeling Limited, maybe another film from Anderson I'm forgetting along the way. I'm definitely more intrigued by what Kaufman has in store. Yeah, it's unfortunate that pairing had to come up this soon, for sure. Okay. Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. We move on to the final set of four. The Coen brothers versus Abbas Kiarostami, Steve McQueen versus Darren Aronofsky, Terrence Malick versus Werner Herzog. It's our nature. Wow, it's our that? nature bracket, which we did not <laughs> Can plan we just merge those two and just move them forward together as one? Oh, that would be so good. I want to see a co-directed film by Malick and Herzog. The guy who thinks nature is just horrible and <laughs> is out to brutally murder you and the other guy who thinks we should all just retreat yes, there. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I guess it will come down to maybe not their films, but how you view nature. Finally, Steven Soderbergh versus Catherine Bigelow. Well, let's start by angering you even further. It's very easy. <laughs> to go with Bigelow over Soderbergh. Easy? Easy, easy. Oh, yeah. Again. You're insane. I'm always behind the crowd on Soderbergh. Yes, you he's, are. He's fine. Um, Bigelow gets it, gets the vote for me. Steve McQueen, I'm going to go with over Aronofsky. Mm-hmm. Um, trajectory again, Noah, 12 Years a Slave. Eh, that kind of makes it pretty easy for me. The Coens, of course, we're going with the Coens, although it's an unfortunate matchup there that we have to lose Kirstami this early, which we will. The tough one is Malik and Herzog. Um, let's see if you could talk me into voting your way on those. <laughs> I don't know if I can. The easiest one for me, just slightly edging out the Coen brothers Kiarostami matchup, is Soderbergh versus Bigelow. Hurt Locker, very good film. Love Zero Dark Thirty, but Soderbergh is one of my favorite filmmakers. He's definitely advancing. The toughest is that McQueen versus Aronofsky matchup, because if you look at their films, I like an equal number of movies they've made up to this point, but something about McQueen and his latest work with 12 Years a Slave, I'm with you. I think that is giving him the advantage advantage there. Malik versus Herzog. <laughs> because of Knight of Cups. Ooh, that's, I know. Because of Knight of Cups, it's Herzog. Herzog had one of my top five most anticipated movies of the year. One of the movies that's playing at Sundance. I think he has actually two coming out this year, and he's just, that word again, but such an enigmatic filmmaker, and you just never know what you're going to get from him. I'm more curious to see what crazy direction Herzog is going to go in than watching To the Wonder and Knight of Cups Part 3, which seems to be where he's heading. Okay, so that is the question for me, because Knight of Cups gave me very little new, and what was familiar was not done as interestingly as it had been done before. I've got to believe that someone like Malik will do something in a different direction before his career is over, and that could be great. So I'm going to talk myself into Malik, mostly because I don't want to agree with you. <laughs> I think that's as valid Malik reason it is. as any. For the record, at the very last minute, we considered going to a field of 64. Oh, my goodness. Because, as you know, Josh... I bailed on this conversation. We had a list of 35 names that we left out yeah. that Sam and I really wrestled with, feeling like they deserved to be among the top 32. Some of those names, just to let you know how hard this was... You're just going to anger people by I know, sharing these. I know. I don't know why I'm doing it, because they probably would have forgotten about them, mm-hmm. but... Especially recently, how much I've loved his last two films, Noah Baumbach didn't make the list, Olivier Assayas, Danny Boyle, David Cronenberg, Jim Jarmusch, Sam is actually still wearing a black armband in protest. Kind of agree with him. David Lynch, Asghar Farhadi, one of my current favorite filmmakers, Gus Van Sant didn't make the list, Ang Lee, Mike Lee, David O. Russell, 
that wasn't a tough one for me. And of course, as we mentioned, Inyari 2 not making this list as well. Again, that just among 35 names that we considered for this round of 32. We apologize if we left your favorite filmmaker out. You can leave us a comment in one of these poll questions or you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. But how you play is simple. You go to filmspotting.net. You can see all the matchups and link to the bracket. And this is a great opportunity to introduce your non-film spotting friends to the show. You don't have to ask them to listen even. Just invite them to take part in the madness. It's all at filmspotting.net. This is going to be fun. Next up, we're going to return to our Elaine May Marathon with a review of Mikey and Nikki from 1976. Stay with us. All you people going out tonight All I want is one soul to love One soul to love Jumping in here to thank everybody who donated to the show this past week, a week away, meant that they've backed up a little bit. Josh, not too many, but some great notes here that we did want to share from our listeners. First, we wanted to mention the music this week is coming to you from M. Ward from his new album, More Rain. He starts a national tour in late April down south with the dates in North Carolina, Virginia, and D.C., and he's coming to Chicago on June 16th. Let's get to the donation, starting with Caleb at Central Michigan University. His major is Broadcast and Cinematic Arts. Josh, he's taking his final capstone class for his major, and one of his projects was that he had to analyze some trends in his intended area of study and interview folks in the industry. So he reached out to us, and I was nice enough to respond to some of his questions. Probably gave him no insights at all, but he deemed them worthy enough of donating to the show. Thank you, Caleb, for that. We also got a donation from Jose Maldonado in Lakeland, Florida. I just had to write in and thank you for all the awesome work you do and for absolutely making my week. It's been a pretty hectic 2016, so I've had to do some serious catching up with your podcast. I recently listened to your best films of 2015 episode and could not believe my ears when Adam actually read one of my emails on air. It caught me totally off guard and was such a joy as I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while and greatly value your opinions. I've discovered plenty of gems I may have otherwise overlooked thanks to your countless recommendations. It also made it glaringly obvious that I was way overdue to pay the dealer. The paltry sum of my donation could not even begin to cover the hours upon hours of entertainment you guys have provided to help me get through my work week, but please accept it with my eternal gratitude. Given that the best films of 2015 episode was way back in December, I understand that this email is about as overdue as my donation, so I apologize for my tardiness and look forward to much more film spotting for 2016 and beyond. Take care. Thank you, Jose. We also heard from Rob Clearfield in Chicago, and because this segment can't go by without some mention of pronunciation... Rob wrote in to correct our pronunciation of Alejandro Gonzalez Inyaritu. 
Which, yeah, I Josh, too. I have been convinced now for a while that I'm saying it right. And why? Because if you look online, that's how they say it. Not in Yaritu, but in Yaritu. The accent is on the A. We have listeners who speak Spanish fluently who have written in and said, yes, Adam, you are saying it correctly. But Rob linked to Emmanuel Lubetsky's Oscar speech where yes. he thanked in Yaritu, and he said it in Yaritu. Yeah, so we've updated the film so, spotting pronunciation guide. Mara, Mara. But do we do we believe Lubezki? <laughs> I mean, you would think he would know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he never calls him by his last <laughs> name. you wrong. I don't know. I'm sticking with Inyari 2 for at least a little while longer. But I did write back to Rob, and he said that that conversation prompted him to make his long overdue first donation to the show. To commemorate the occasion, I'm sending the humble offering of my personal film spotting top five discoveries, the only criteria being films which I first heard about on the show. I do love this when listeners share their discoveries, and this has been common over the years in this segment. His number five, The Babadook. Number four, The Petrified Forest, which I had to Google because I've certainly never mentioned that film on the show before, Bogart. but it made one of your recent top fives. Yeah, I don't remember which one, but... Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Was it Hostage Movies or that something? That sounds right. Yeah, nice. I think it was. Wow, look at that. Number three, Under the Skin. Number two, Stories We Tell, Sarah Pauly. And number one, a short film about killing slash a short film about love, Krzysztof Kieślowski, an Adam-style cheat. I couldn't help myself. That's a good batch of films. Yeah. We'll allow that cheat. We will. We also heard from Stephen in Provo, Utah. I wanted to give a small donation to not only show my appreciation for the show, but also to give a shout out to my favorite Coen Brothers character, their first devil stand-in, M. Emmett Walsh's Lauren Visser, from their underrated first feature, Blood Simple. Visser, much like the characters John Goodman would later play for them, has an air of joviality, and his southern charm or crass hide a level of intelligence that caused the other characters to underestimate him. And he is just as much of an agent of chaos as any of the other devils that the Coens would later create. Anyone who hasn't seen Blood Simple is truly missing out. I can't remember when this came in, but I think it's possible it came in before we did that top five. And I thought Lauren Visser at least got an honorable mention from me, but perhaps not. He definitely warrants mentioning. Thank you, Stephen. We also heard from Nathan or Nathan. In Washington, D.C., I just started listening to Film Spotting a few months ago, but really love it. I have to thank you for introducing me to Chungking Express and Wong Kar Wai, and after this week, I look forward to watching his contribution to Wuxia Films. I also wondered if you have ever thought about looking at Bollywood films. While I know they can be rather long, I think there are a few that are quite good and you too might appreciate, especially Gangs of Wasipur. It is a two-part movie that looks at three generations of an Indian mob family. The film is heavily influenced by Tarantino and Scorsese, and it also represents a new wave of cinema coming out of Bollywood that I find to be fascinating. I also think an episode like last week's Wuxia film with a Bollywood expert would be really interesting. You know what? That would be the way to go. Yes, and I might have one too. When Way back when I was the movie critic and the movie editor for the Naperville Sun, they would play at a theater out that way, Bollywood mm. films, every week. They'd get a new one, and there was a woman out there who just loved them and had seen a ton of them, and I sort of had her on that beat, and she would do many reviews of those, Kathy mm. Gibson. So I don't know if we get to that, if she could help us out, but you do know, before you agree to anything, these tend to be like what? Well... Yeah. Three plus hours, And maybe? that was alluded to there. Yeah, they're always long, and that does make it problematic when we are often fitting these marathon films in as extra 
film viewing, but over the years this has come up a few times, and I'm pretty sure that if you look at our marathons page, Bollywood is listed among the many options we've considered. I don't know when or if we'll get to it, but I think a top five like that, maybe if there's a significant release out there, Josh, having someone on as an expert like Sean Gilman with Wusha, I think that would be great. And that film in particular has come up before. Mm -hmm. It's been a recommendation of listeners. A couple more here to close out. Tim in Plymouth, Minnesota, longtime listener of the show, a new $5 a month subscriber to the show, and a gold-level donation that came in from Mac in Washington, D.C. First-time donator, long-time listener. Many thanks for all of your great work on film spotting. Your weekly reviews and top fives are thoroughly entertaining and thoughtful and have kept me from making a number of cinematic mistakes over the years, whether I was at the Art House, Cineplex, or on my couch. So my donation today is just a portion of the funds I've saved from listening to your reviews. I also wanted to mention that I am a member of the selection committee for Washington, D.C.'s only Japanese film festival, Cinematsuri, which is quickly approaching March 20 to 27. Cinematsuri showcases five of Japan's most recent and best films, each in a different genre, and reflects the richness and diversity of today's Japanese cinema. It's not just horror films and anime. There is something for everyone this year, including a samurai flick. And information on all the films and tickets is available at the Cinematsuri website, cinematsuri.org. Come for the cherry blossoms, stay for the films. Thanks again for all of your efforts in producing a great show. Well, thank you very much for the generous donation there, Mac, and we are certainly happy to promote that event. If you want more information about it, we will link to cinematsuri.org in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. Our final donation comes to us, a platinum-level donation from Gadi in New York, New York. He says, yes, I'm a bit late paying the dealer. I started listening to you in 2006. Measured in Christopher Nolan time, that means dating back to The Prestige, which happens to be my favorite of his films. I think we should just moving forward use the Nolan clock. I like that. We were of similar sensibilities. Well, true more of Adam than of Sam. And your reviews and marathons introduced me to films I otherwise might not have made a point to see. Brick was probably the first of those and far from the last. I stopped listening for a few years. It wasn't you. It was me. But I've been back for a while now in the age of Adam and Josh. After all this time, our sensibility are still pretty similar. Again, I side more with Adam than with Josh. Liking the Star Wars prequels, preferring Inyari 2 over Tarantino. Either of these crimes is worthy of referral to The Hague, obviously. Yeah, I feel like I've just been read my rights or <laughs> <Yeah>. something. <laughs> Thank you, Gotti. You both have black marks on your record, though. I'm not sure I've forgiven you yet for so persuasively recommending Under the Skin, which, of course, ironically, just listed as a top five film spotting right. discovery for another listener. But on the other hand, I applaud you for giving films like Inside Lewin Davis and Ex Machina all the love they deserve. Whatever I think of any film, I'm always interested to hear what you think. For that, the dealer must be paid. This contribution should help subsidize your purchase of more Hamilton tickets, which is what I assume all donations are being redirected to at this point. Yes, indeed. Enjoy the show as I've been enjoying yours. Thank you again very much, Gadi, and thank you to everyone who donated this week, including all of our monthly subscribers. You really are the lifeblood of the show. You keep us doing what we're doing. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello there, Film Spotting Mothership. This is Allison Wilmore from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. And on our latest episode, we consider what makes a flop a flop. And what makes someone think that mustaches are inherently funny enough to make the basic fact of them the central joke of a movie as we dig into the ill-fated Johnny Depp comedy Mordecai. 
We'll also be taking a look at Depp's journey from teen heartthrob to outsize actor and recommending a few of his more interesting movies available to stream at home right now. To listen, find us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. Hi, this is Lynn Shelton, director of Hump Day and Your Sister Sister. You are listening to Film Spotting. Hey, I'm and Josh. This is Ben Holland from Houston, Texas, calling in for your third episode of your Elaine May Marathon on Mikey and Nikki. And I am curious about this film because I actually saw it third, uh, actually first, rather, and you guys are seeing it third. And it's very interesting to me because since I saw it first, it was so weird because it was so dark and unique and kind of funny moments, but it's just on this very, very bittersweet film, and I didn't really connect to it, and especially, I think, because I thought of her more as a comedian who made Ishtar and these work with Mike Nichols, and then I go back and I see Heartbreak Kid and New Leaf, and those are the films I kind of expected her to make, and they were very, very good, and I'm still kind of reeling for Mikey and Nikki, so I'm curious if you guys, A, since you had seen those films first, had even more of a visceral reaction than I did to this sort of change in tone. And B, I'm kind of curious if she had, of course, this film was very troubled. If she hadn't had those troubles and was fine and she wanted to make more films right afterwards, do you think they would have been more like Mikey and Nikki or more like A New Leaf and Heartbreak Kid? Anyways, I love the show and very curious to hear what you guys think about this film. This is Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, and we're continuing our marathon of the films of Elaine May with Mikey and Nikki from 1976. Mikey and Nikki is a bit of a detour for May, as Ben suggested. She did write and direct it, but not quite the same broad comedy that we got in A New Leaf or The Heartbreak Kid. This tells the story one night, really, between two friends played by John Cassavetes and Peter Falk, who are low-level mob men. One of them, the Cassavetes character, Nicky, suspects that a hit has been put out on him. So that's probably the best place to start, Adam, is this idea of tone that Ben brings up. It was jarring for me to see a film like this coming from May after her previous two. Was it similarly jarring for you? Yeah, I think it'd have to be for anybody, whether you watch them chronologically like we did or you just knew May by reputation like Ben did. If you told me that Mikey and Nikki didn't surprise or stun you a little bit, I'd say you were as crazy as the Cassavetes character is in this movie. This is a dark, dramatic movie. And there was actually a point about 80 minutes into it where it hit me that I hadn't laughed once. I was thinking about the fact that I can't believe I'm watching an Elaine May movie and I haven't laughed once, really not even a chuckle. And I swear, Josh, as soon as I thought that, something made me laugh on screen. (laughs) And it was mainly because of Peter Falk's delivery. It's when Mikey is in the car with Ned Beatty, who is the hitman, who is looking for Nikki, and they pass a guy on the street. And Ned Beatty says, is that him? And Falk says, no. And he says, hey, you sure? And Falk looks at him just sort of like... How are you questioning me? Right. And he says, yes, I'm sure. You want to shoot him just in case? <laughs> and that cracked me up. It really did. I do recognize, though, that for many viewers, this probably could be a much funnier movie. Our friend Peter Lubuza, who was kind of our, our guide for this Lane May Marathon, we talked to him at the beginning of it. He said this about Mikey and Nikki in his comments on Letterboxd, one of the most uncomfortable laughs I've ever had. I've never felt so tense while laughing at some of the jokes here, which May strikes just the perfect tone. Oddball humor eases tragedy of a dissipating friendship. And 
in fairness, that's just the way I am with material like this. I don't know if you are, Josh. My personality or whatever it is, I have a hard time seeing humor in situations that are this raw with such dysfunction and such miserable characters on screen. But that said, in preparing, it did occur to me how potentially funny everything about say, the Ned Beatty character is. He's just such an inept hitman. Or how potentially funny some of Mikey's behavior is, because it's just that absurd. And this movie is filled with uncomfortable moments, like Peter said, that I could absolutely see provoking uncomfortable laughs in viewers. Maybe on a second viewing, I might have a different reaction to it. Again, I think that's just me, where the pain and the tension dominates the lighter, more ridiculous, funny stuff. But Aside from how much of a comedy Mikey and Nikki is or isn't, when you really think about it, I don't think it's that shocking of a departure at all. It, in fact, seems to me like the inevitable evolutionary step from A New Leaf and The Heartbreak Kid. Those movies are about partnerships. They're marriages that are very tenuously held together to begin with. You can almost throw love out altogether. The defining characteristic of Walter Matthau's marriage to Elaine May in A New Leaf and of Charles Grodin and Jeannie Berlin in The Heartbreak Kid is hate. Both men revile their wives in those films. And I think Mikey and Nikki packages that hate and it takes it to its kind of next logical conclusion where you want your partner dead, not in a farcical way where you're reading books about how to poison them while on your honeymoon, but actually dead. And what that means is you're going to bear the burden of responsibility for that as well. And waiting for that realization to sink in yeah. for the fault character for Mikey is really something. This does spiral rather confidently from a goofy buddy flick at the start to, uh, you know, a relationship tragedy. Mm. See, really. That's funny, though. I still could never describe it as goofy. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, a little bit more. I, it, I didn't react. To I it didn't laugh way. out loud. I wouldn't say that I laughed out loud, but maybe just had like this this smile on my face. And a lot of that came from the interactions between Cassavetes and Falk mm -hmm. because they are so locked in to each other in every scene, they almost create this bubble where nothing else in the outside world is even going to break in. I found I the movie to be claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. Even as there was comedy there for me, it was also claustrophobic. And I think they, you know, it's funny that you bring up how their relationship compares to those marriages, because while you're trying to get a hold of how they are in relation to each other in that opening scene in Nikki's hotel room where he's holed up, they play very different dynamics all in the same 15 minutes. When mm -hmm. Mikey is trying to give him an antacid tablet, it's right. almost like he's his father. He yeah. uses like a little kidding voice and is like, come on, take your medicine. And then they also tease each other like brothers. And how about that moment where Nikki just kind of falls into him exhausted and Mikey starts like gently massaging his neck almost yeah. as if he's a lover. So this relationship between them is just fascinating to watch how it shifts in terms of dynamic. And then I think the more we learn about the role that Mikey is playing in all this, mm -hmm. it feels all the heavier to yes. us because we sense the struggle that he has because there is this real affection that he has for Nikki as well. No, you're absolutely right. I think that heightens the tragedy completely that unlike those other two partnerships I mentioned in the two previous May films, you can tell for all those reasons you just enumerated that Mikey and Nikki genuinely have feelings for each other. They genuinely love each other. And you get that full sense of history that we don't get at all with some of these other partnerships. And that makes the betrayal element to this film, even though 
even that is complex, right? Because you feel like one character is betraying another, but you also feel like, well, damn it, he deserves it. And you're not that broken up about that character's betrayal because you feel like maybe he's got it coming to him. So all of that is on display, just as you said, in that opening 15 minutes, we see a character go from father, mother, brother, nurse. I mean, that's how they behave. And I love that May manages to squeeze all that complexity in. Okay. Let me call Annie first. I told her I was going to meet a guy and have a drink and I'd be home in an hour. And she's sitting up. She's waiting for me. So let me call her. Hey, the hell is the phone? You can tell her now. Well, I'll think of something. I don't treat my wife the way you do. If I'm going to be late or if I'm going to be out all night, I call. What's the matter? Is my face dirty? You were sitting in that bar for 45 minutes. You never once thought about calling your wife. Never once thought about calling Annie. <laughs> all of a sudden, you got to call Annie. I got a terrific suggestion for you, Nick. I suggest you find somebody you can trust. I was thinking about how here there are a number of uncomfortable scenes, just like there are uncomfortable scenes that we praised in a movie like the heartbreak kid where it's all about the awkwardness of the scene and cringe, one character yeah. yeah making you cringe but there really is humor there even if i was watching it with my eyes closed because it made me so uncomfortable here there's a different layer there is something darker and more menacing about the cringe worthy scenes in this movie and i think about one in particular where Nikki takes Mikey over to his girl's place mm. and tries to pass her off as if she's a prostitute who will not only sleep with Nikki, but will sleep with Mikey after Nikki's done. Those are really hard scenes to watch. I, I would be hard pressed to find anyone telling me that there's some humor there. It's just a different sensibility completely with this movie. That is where there's a distinct turn in May's work, I think, and that we're not cringing in kind of a goofy way or a way that makes us laugh we're truly cringing watching characters exhibit some pretty repugnant behavior yeah i think that scene is where you admit to yourself these aren't nice guys mm -hmm. you know you spend a lot of the movie because again we're so within their bubble wanting to in some way root for them in some way identify with them maybe find one or the other to choose as the guy you're going to side with as they increasingly split yeah. but when we get to that apartment you're like you know whoa this this is some nasty stuff going on here. Uh, and, and that speaks to, I think, the honesty in the performances and where both actors are willing to take yeah. these parts. I got to say, I was mesmerized by Falk. I mean, Me too. didn't really know much of his screen work. Maybe Wings of Desire is the only other film I've seen him in. Otherwise, mostly his television work is Columbo, of course. And man, was he something here. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Cassavetes has, is a little bit more performative where I got the sense May is creating this improvisational atmosphere for them. Yes. And you I could sense him having fun with that and seeing where it could go and being aware maybe it's you could sense he was aware that someone's watching whereas Falk is just he's just Mikey, you know, and uh, and watching him watch Nikki and you can see mm -hmm. all of that conflict between them how close they are and at the same time that scene we're in the bar and he's watching Nikki make the smoke rings mm -hmm. and May just focuses on Mikey's face because you could see him at once admiring Nikki's brazenness and within this situation how he's still able to be comfortable and knowing but I got to close in on this guy too I, I just think Falk is great and maybe yeah. a great early scene that shows a little bit distinction between how he's 
playing the part here in how Cassavetes is performing is again in the first 50 minutes when he runs down to the diner to get milk for Nikki. Oh yeah. And he attacks the guy. Right. I mean, that guy just doesn't show the urgency that Mike right, clearly right. feels. And he yeah. and he has this instant anger over that. Mm-hmm. It, it's like instinctual how he leaps over the camera yeah. and starts beating the guy. The violence there, it just comes out of nowhere from from who you thought this guy was. So, uh, yeah, I could have watched Falk all day. Yeah, I love his performance. I think it's the performance of the film. I would still give Cassavetes a lot of credit. I think it's a high wire act and I don't think he goes too far. It's bigger. It's certainly bigger, but there is still a rawness to it and a sense of him getting lost in that Nikki character. I think he has to be to do some of the things that he does. Like, and Nikki is a bigger character, to be that's, fair. That's like it. Nikki is performing, right? Most of the All time. All the time. Yeah. yeah. All the time he is conning someone. Yep. And so I think that there's still something very grounded. And you used the word instinctual. I think what May really gets right here is casting two actors. It would seem anyway. I don't know a lot about their history. I know some of Cassavetti's films and how he worked in an improvisational way. I know that he cast Peter Falk in other films of his, so they had to have some kind of relationship. She cast these two actors who seemed to be playing characters they knew intimately, and they tapped into something that does come across here almost as primal. And we talked about this with Lubuza when we were previewing A New Leaf and how that film didn't really seem to show much of what May was really known for, which is improvisation. This is the first film where I really got the sense of it. And I mean that as a very strong compliment because those performances seem untethered. And I love the energy of that and the immediacy of that, that sense of it being almost like a powder keg that you know it's going to blow. You know it's going to blow. The only question is when. And there was a real thrill in watching those two actors just disappear into their parts. And Sam, in his review on Letterboxd, mentioned getting a little bit of a Mr. Orange, Mr. White vibe to them from Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) And I I do think some of those affectionate moments come through, like what we see from those characters in the Tarantino film. But it also occurred to me that maybe Sam is partly basing that on consciously or not the fact that Falk and Harvey Keitel are a lot alike as actors. Yeah, that's true. They are similarly stout men. They speak in a similarly clipped way. Like Neither of them would ever be up on a stage eloquently pronouncing Shakespeare. They just don't have those kind of voices. They also don't raise their voices much. That's something I think that makes the performance so compelling in contrast to Cassavetes. He's the big one. He's the loud one. Falk is always repressing something. And Nikki doesn't repress anything. That's part of his problem. And in fact, I do think it's tragically ironic by the end of the film that this is a movie that is fundamentally about a character, Nikki, who nobody ever says no to. Or they try and they inevitably give in. And sometimes I think the script has the characters give in a little too easily. Sometimes I didn't completely buy some of the women in this case, the way they transformed and eventually melted in front of him, despite their hatred and their apparent disdain for him. They get seduced, I think, a little bit too easily, perhaps. But the whole movie is about characters consistently never saying no to him until the end of the film. A character finally says no. And there are legit consequences, real consequences to that. So let me go back to the improvisational nature and first agree that creating that atmosphere and allowing the actors to work within that way is a huge strength that May brings Mm -hmm. to the film. But I do wonder if, in a way, in terms of filmmaking craft, Mikey and Nikki almost represented a step back to me for the work that she had done compared to 
A New Leaf and some of the work in The Heartbreak Kid as well. And the improvisational scenes speak to that. While the acting is benefiting from it, I didn't sense a very coherent visual strategy to capture this dynamic. So it's all in the performances, mm-hmm. but often we're we're seeing them from different angles, they're cut in different ways, and there just isn't a, a clear strategy that would have enhanced them in an even better way. There are even instances, I think one is in the apartment of Nikki's girlfriend, where you see a boom mic. And there are just some things like this, where you can sense May not having quite as much control. Even in A New Leaf, you could sense her feeling her way into the film as a right. new director, but making some interesting choices. Here, the only interesting choice that really stood out to me was, again, in that apartment when Nikki is with the girlfriend yeah. and Mikey is just in the He's back the in kitchen. the kitchen. And yeah. the lighting has yeah. the living room where Nikki and his girlfriend are in the dark. You can't see them, but they're at the but front we know of the what's screen. Going we on. know what's going on. They're at the bottom of the screen. And you can see Mikey in the illuminated kitchen in the back having to sit there yeah. and supposedly give them privacy. That was a hugely affecting use of camera and mm-hmm. framing. And I didn't get much of a sense of that elsewhere in Mikey and Nikki. We agree on... The fact that the movie isn't precise visually or as precise as what we've seen from her other films, but that's actually a strength for me. I think maybe sometimes I felt with those films, as much as I enjoyed them, that they were a little bit too precise. And that kind of helped from a comedic standpoint, but from a narrative standpoint, it actually kind of stifled me. Whereas here, because of those performances, maybe, I feel like she tapped into something. This is the first time where we've really seen May work without a net. And I don't think that means she was working completely without structure or without a plan or a sense of what she wants. But understanding that the real power of this movie was going to come from that dynamic and that if that meant, as I learned and wasn't at all surprised to learn, Sam pointed this out and I read it on the Wikipedia page for this movie. She shot a lot of scenes with multiple cameras because she wasn't trying to piece it together in the editing. Yeah, you definitely she, sense that. Yeah, she wanted to get these performances. And I don't just mean get them in the conventional sense, as in I'm basing the movie on everything that happens between them, but I don't know where they're going to go. I'm going to give them the basic groundwork. We know where they have to get by the end of the scene. We know where the scene begins. But everything in between is going to be watching Peter Falk and John Cassavetes disappear for who knows how long into these men, into the psyches of Mikey and Nikki. And that, for me, was something that was really exciting. I think if you go back and watch, for example, their fight scene, their extended like eight, nine minute fight scene, I think that there's a real clear sense on her part of when to cut, when to show Mikey versus when to show Nikki, when to cut back to a long shot and the way she shows the two men against the backdrop of the street where it's a very shallow focus. You have really no sense of them being in an environment because it's not about what's happening where they are. It's, it has nothing to do with the neighborhood they're in or anything else. It's all about what's happening simply between those two men. It's almost like they're they're against a backdrop, you know, against a stage prominent in front of our faces. So I feel like there are still moments like that, even if they're not quite as visually appealing as the scene that you described in the apartment. I I agree that that's the standout just from a purely framing and composition standpoint, but the way she had the camera or cameras in the right places to let them go I think that's that's a strength as a director, too. She definitely puts the performances at the forefront. And, yeah, they are the highlight of the film. To that point, I mentioned reading a little bit about the background and making it on her Wikipedia page. I hope it's true because it's just such a good story. At one point, apparently, they 
walked out of a scene. Cassavetes and Falk walked out of a scene and the camera just rolled for several minutes. And a camera operator yelled cut because May didn't yell cut. And she got upset and said, you know, that's my job. I say when to cut. What are you doing? He, of course, said, well, the actors left the set. They're not coming back. And she said, yeah, but they might come back. <laughs> and I believe her. I you believe can, her that you she can always hope <laughs> she she didn't know whether or not they were going to come back and she was going to leave open that possibility. I like you can I like see those making like that. You can sometimes. see those two performers continuing the scene no matter where I mean. they were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is the third film, but not the final film in our Elaine May Marathon. In a few weeks, we will get to another movie about a male partnership, Ishtar, starring Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. We did want to say thank you. Thank you. To Bradley Powell at Olive Films, which I didn't realize was actually a local Chicago company, but it is. They are the distributors of the Blu-ray edition of Elaine May's A New Leaf. They are a company dedicated to bringing independent foreign documentary and classic films to life. Their website, if you would like to learn more, is olivefilms.com. And Bradley was aware of our review, heard our conversation about Elaine May's A New Leaf, and sent us Josh two copies of the Blu-ray. So Awfully nice. Very nice. Thank you, Bradley, for that. If you have any comments about our review of Mikey and Nikki or anything else you heard on the show, you can email us anytime. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You just might hear it featured on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook, and we're also on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top five in the show archives while you're there if you dare enter the mouth of madness film spotting madness the director's edition 32 directors only one survives round one voting is live and if you haven't already we strongly encourage you to check out the film spotting family of podcasts film spotting streaming video unit and the next picture show you can find both in iTunes. Out in limited release this weekend, Creative Control, an indie set in near-future Brooklyn, and our friend David Ehrlich in New York says it unfolds like a live-action ghost in the shell as directed by a young Noah Baumbach. I don't know if I actually want to see that. <laughs> I always love David's his concoctions. They oh, take the me best. like four seconds, and then I'm yeah. like, okay, I can picture that. I see where he's going. Eye in the Sky with Helen Mirren, Aaron Paul, and the late Alan Rickman about military drone operation, and Hello, My Name is Doris, directed by Michael Showalter with Sally Field as a 60-something who pursues her younger co-worker. Out in wide release, Divergent Allegiant, which is why we are choosing to review on our next show a movie that will have opened two weeks ago, 10 Cloverfield Lane, and the top five we will spend a little bit more time on Terrence Malick sharing our top five Terrence Malick images. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music came from the M. Ward album More Rain. More information is at mwardmusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.